Well, good morning. I am so excited because we are literally studying today one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, Colossians chapter three. Whether you're new to the faith, whether you've been a Christian for decades, it has something to say to you because at the end, I'll give you the punchline, he's talking about work and marriage and parenting. But to get us prepared to do all those relationships, and my guess is you're in one of those quadrants, if not all three, he has to give us some practical but very direct instruction and encouragement. And I needed some direct uh, encouragement this summer with regard to parenting because my son kind of had a tough year athletically, not, not because of his skills, not because of you know, his talent, but because of his height. I think we have a picture to show you the kind of kids that young Drew was playing with. Do we have that picture? Uh, uh, of Drew, there he is. Okay, so you can't really tell there, that kid's a foot taller than Drew. So Drew, Drew has not quite hit that uh, stage, um, and, and, and if you know what I'm talking about, it starts with a P. Um, he's not gone there yet, all the other kids have gone there, They're, uh, and, and he's having to play against these kids, so I had to encourage him over and over again this summer, buddy, it's gonna be okay, you can do it, you'll get there, one day you will grow, I promise. Um, and all those kind of things, so I've been trying to pump Drew up, and, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience as a parent, but uh, you tell your kids to believe something that you, you don't really believe? Anybody ever do that? Like you believe it, but you're not really living it. And I think about this whole idea that really Paul is trying to tell us in this letter, which is really a simple idea, but a very profound one, and that is this. He is saying to us, you have what it takes. You have what it takes. That's what I've been trying to tell Drew all summer. That's what, what I... I'm trying to tell myself, when I look at my job, when I look at my marriage, when I look at my parenting, I'm like, man, I don't know if I have what it takes. Some days I think I do and some days I think I don't, which is why in chapter two, verse 10, Paul assures us and he says, listen, because you belong to Christ, you are complete, having everything you need. We have what we need to live the life that God has called us to live. That is the core message of the book of Colossians. And what you have to understand is these little books in the Bible and in the, in, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, books like you know Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, all they are are the practical um, like applications of the teachings of Jesus for the local church. So these are Jesus's ideas really contextualized, fitted in to the reality that we all deal with in, in, as Christians in a local church. And so this idea of you have what it takes was being challenged in that day as it is in ours. There were people saying, Here, here's what it takes. Here, here's a philosophy, here's an idea. And there were two of these kind of philosophies, these ideas that were tripping the church up. And this is what false teaching does. False teaching takes your eyes off Jesus and gets your eyes on something else. And so there were two things that were going on, and we read about these in chapter one and chapter two. There was mysticism, which basically says the world is boring, so you gotta pursue an experience to escape from it. On the other side, there was legalism, which said the world is bad, and so you gotta create rules to protect yourself from it. And Paul, our author, was a guy who had built his life on legalism, so he knows what he's talking about. And he kept the rules, and, and then he made new rules to keep, and then he realized one day, I can't keep these rules. I'm not good at my own 
laws. I, I can't do it. I don't think I have what it takes. And so what he's telling us now is there's something beyond escaping this world. There's something beyond creating, creating rules to protect yourself from this world. You can actually engage this world because you have what it takes to do what God has called you to do. You don't have to look anywhere else. And so what he does is he gives us three simple reminders, three things to show us what it looks like to live into this idea that we have what it takes. First thing he says in the first three verses of chapter three is, he says you gotta remember your identity. And I don't know if you know this, I started studying identity theft this week. Like, I don't know if this has happened to any of you or anybody you know, people like will steal your identity, right? Millions of people, identity stole, billions of dollars lost. This is why you have to change the password on your computer every three days. Constantly getting notifications. What are they asking, right? I, don't you hate that, by the way? That's because of all these fools stealing our identity, right? And so, so what they're asking when you get that notification, please re-enter your password. What is your mother's maiden name? All, the, all that stuff. What are they doing? They're saying, are you who you say you are? That's what they're doing. Are you who you say you are? Who are you? Right, and, and what I love about the Bible is it meets us right where we live because it doesn't just tell us who we are, it actually tells us whose we are. And in the first few verses of chapter three, it's telling us whose we are. It says in verse one, if you have been raised with Christ. Now, he's not saying, but remember he's talking to Christians here, so he's not going, well, if this really happened. He knows that it's happened, it's really the idea of since. It's a little grammatical ploy that he's using to engage the readers. He's saying, you know this happened to you. Since you've been raised with Christ, since you're a new creation, since once you were dead and now you're alive. See, Christianity doesn't make good people better. It makes dead people alive. Big difference. Jesus is not your life coach. Jesus is your savior. So he takes you from death and he brings you in to life. If, since, you have been raised with Christ. Before you had to prove uh, to everyone around you what the answer is, who am I? Now, Jesus has proved <laughs> to everyone whose you are. You have been raised with Christ. Verse three, it says, for you have died, your old self, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now here's what this means, simple truth. When God looks at you, follower of Jesus, he sees Jesus. When the God the Father looks at you, he sees you. Why? Because your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, aren't you glad that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your weaknesses, he doesn't see your struggle? That's not what he sees. He sees his son and he is pleased, which means you're not a sinful son or daughter. You're a son and, and daughter who occasionally sins. Big difference. He doesn't look at you based on your history. He looks at you based on your destiny. In verse four it says, your life is gonna appear in glory. Like one day you will be free from sin and it is if, if God has supernaturally said, that day for me is now. I'm seeing you as sinless. Now that is awesome if you're a sinner. We got any sinners in the house? You're like, yeah, man, my life is messy, it's broken, it's imperfect, yeah, me too. But I'm so glad. Messy? Hidden. Imperfect, hidden. Full of doubts, hidden. God's not basing his relationship with us 
on our sin and struggle. He's basing it on the perfect work of Jesus for us. I was talking to some teenagers recently and sharing, and, and one of them just kind of in a moment of honesty, as only teenagers can give, they're like, well, well I'm afraid God's gonna get me and judge me. Just kind of, kind of came out of their mouth. And I said, are you a Christian? And the guy's like, yeah. I said, he's already got you, and he's forgiven you. He's already judged Jesus in your place for your sin. See, friends, this is the key to the Christian life. It's understanding our identity. But, but sometimes we don't feel accepted. Sometimes we don't feel forgiven. How many of you sometimes don't feel forgiven? Raise your hand. Am I the only one? No, I don't, I don't feel. So Paul knows this. And so he says you gotta do a couple things to actualize and understand your identity. Verse one, one and two continue. It says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and then set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of this world. Okay, two words, seek and save. Everybody say seek. Everybody say set. Seek and set. Seek and set. Pursue, focus. Seek and set. Pursue, seek, focus, set. So that means we have to actually live into the reality of whose we are. We have to we have to constantly say, I don't belong to this world, I don't belong to this place, I have a high, my citizenship is in heaven, I don't have to live in, in this stinking thinking that goes on in my life where I condemn myself all the time for my struggles and my sins, I can rise above that, I can, I can see that God sees me in Jesus. You have to seek and you have to set. And some of you are like, man, that sounds like a lot of work. And it is, and it is. But don't worry about doing the work if you wanna keep struggling with self-condemnation and insecurity and have a crappy prayer life, don't worry about it. But if you want this reality that I am a child of God and that I can go before God. My wife and I were just in uh, Hyannis, Massachusetts, where the Kennedy Museum is. And there's all these wonderful pictures of JFK with his little boy. And they would be holding cabinet meetings and if his little boy walked in, they stopped everything. Because the president would look at his little three-year-old boy and give his attention there. That is what you have before God. All kinds of stuff's going on in heaven. You start to pray, that's my boy. That's my girl. Everything stops. See, that is the privilege. And so to get that into your head requires some work. I love, we, you know, Halloween. Um, is also what's called Reformation Day. So, so there's this idea that the Reformation, where uh, folks split off for some of the abuses and, and craziness of the church and said, hey, we, we wanna be more faithful to Scripture, and, and so that's what that is celebrating. Well, one of, the, one of the leaders of the Reformation was this guy named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther says it this way, and I think this is kind of gets at what we've gotta do. He said, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of the Christian faith. So the gospel... God, we're loved in spite of our performance. We're, our life is hidden in Christ. Jesus died in our place for our sins, all that. He says, that's the main thing. Now, it's most necessary that we know this doctrine, that we teach it to others, and that we beat it into our head continually. You have to be, beat the truth into your head because everything in this world says you're loved by your performance, you're loved by what you do, you're loved, everything is spelled D-O, 
Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, it's done. And that changes the emotional chemistry in your heart and enables you to go, I am accepted. You know what the hardest thing to do as a, as a Christian is? To accept your acceptance. It's the hardest thing to do. But when you do, you go, wait a minute, I'm accepted, I have a new identity, I'm clean, I'm forgiven, I'm whole, I have to seek, I have to set. But when I do that, then when I start hanging out with my spouse, I can love them not for acceptance, but from acceptance. I can parent my kid and when they start, when they start acting crazy, I don't have to get all, like my whole life is, I can, I can parent not for their acceptance, but from my acceptance. See the difference? I can go to work and I don't have to work and try to prove myself for acceptance. I can work and do my job from acceptance. You have to remember your identity. And see, when you stop trying to use your works to impress God and you know that God is impressed with Jesus and you are in Jesus, that gives you confidence to believe God will do good and holy things through my life. But the other thing it does, it gives us safety in God to acknowledge the unholy things that are in us. So Paul continues in verse five, he says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covet covetousness, which is idolatry. And then into verse eight, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, and malice, and slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Did I miss any of your sins there? Pretty exhaustive list. It's one reason I don't like reading the Bible. It's like, ooh, I don't like that. What's he saying? He's saying, when you know your identity, when you know you're completely safe and you will never be rejected, you know what you can do? You can renounce your sins. You can let them go. You can repent. You can put them to death. You can take off the old garment, all these different metaphors we see in chapter three. And he gives kind of a list of sins, kind of bigger categories in verses five and eight. One is sexual sin. One of the words for sexual immorality there in the text is the word pornea. I don't think you have to be a Greek scholar to know what we get from that word, right? So sexual immorality is any sexual contact outside of the marriage covenant. That's how the Bible talks about sexual immorality. Put it to death, renounce it. Coveting, uh, known more commonly as shopping. Did I just go from preaching to meddling? <laughs> Coveting is when you want something so much, you lose your contentment in God. Co Coveting is when you think a person, a product, a status is going to give you something that only God can give you. So it's not buying stuff, it's that you think when you buy something or if you have something or when you get into the bigger house or your kids get into the better school, then your life will be complete, that that is what it takes instead of Jesus being what it takes. So you have to deal with coveting. There's anger. So that word is used in, in a couple different ways. It's really kind of the, the, the idea of your emotions are out of control. You're led by your emotions. Slander, these are sins of the tongue where we tear, tear down somebody else's reputation or we spread sometimes true things with inappropriate people. Gossip, he says you gotta put it to death, you gotta renounce it. But what you have to do when you're dealing with sin is you have to own it. 
You can't just say, well, that sounds like a bad sin. You gotta like, yeah, that sin is in my life. So you have to acknowledge its presence. But then, I love this thing because he, he says, put it to death, and then later on in verses nine, he says, take it off like a garment. Like, that's not who you are. That's not really your identity, right? Like, you've got an S on your chest underneath that thing. Underneath that sin, there's, an, there's a Superman. God is, so take that thing off, which means what you do with sin is you declare that it's powerless. If you're going to overcome sin, you have to declare its weakness and say, you have no power over me. Lust, you ruled my life. Pornography, you ruled my life. I used to be so critical and negative. That's not who I am anymore. And I'm not gonna give in to that. And in so doing, what you do is you unmask your sin. Are you guys still eating Halloween candy? <laughs> I, made, I, made a, I said, I'm not gonna eat any Halloween candy. Um, I'm not gonna bring it to the couch. So I, my job was to stay home. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think we need to take an offering. <laughs> Ushers, come forward. So I'm like, I'm not, gonna take the, I'm not gonna take the candy to the couch, the kids are out, and, and so, but I, my job was to get the candy, but every time I went to get up, I was like, one for you and two for me. So I, I had to eat way too much candy. But, but here a picture of my kids um, in Halloween. So, the, the, you know, so, so there's the boy on the right with the pig. I'm like, bro, nobody knows who you are. Like that is a weird, number one, that, what, what is the pig with, a, with your, you know, the brand of your school, it doesn't make any sense. So he had to take his mask off. Right? There, in other words, there's something behind the mask, right? Well, this is true with our sin. Sin often wears a mask. In other words, what we think is really the problem is not really the problem. My counselor said to me one time, um, he said, Darren, you have a low tolerance for uncomfortable emotions. <laughs> and I was thinking, how's your tolerance for a throat punch right now? Because that does not <laughs> sound good. I don't like what you just said. But what he was saying is, Darren, you are amazing at anger. Like if, 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 remember dictionaries, anybody that old? The dictionary? And they used to like have a picture next to the thing sometimes. He's like, Darren, your picture could be there for anger. You're so great at it. He said, but you have no idea what to do with fear and sadness. He said, so a lot of times, you, everybody thinks you're angry, actually you're sad. You just don't know how to do sad, so you get angry. In other words, there's an emotion behind the emotion. This is what psychologists tell us. The Bible says there's a sin underneath the sin, which is why in the middle of describing all these sins in verse five, he says, I want you to put to death all these sins. Then he says, which is idolatry? Idolatry. Uh, guess what the most warned against sin in the Bible is? It's not sexual sin. You would think it would be sexual sin. It's not murder. It's not even pride. It's idolatry. Over and over and over again, God warns his people about idols. The Ten Commandments tell us something, right? You know, commandments, you know, three through 10, are talking about our sins against God, our sins against one another. But the first two say, don't have idols. Now, I'm not good at math, and I was told there would be no math this morning, but Two out of 10, I think that's 20%. Am I getting that right? Is that right? Anybody a math major? That's 20%. 20% and the first two 
The first two say, so could it be that all of our sin problems are related to our idolatry? I think so. An idol is the sin underneath the sin. An idol is the thing that fuels and nourishes a lot of our sinful behavior. And so, so Paul is saying, listen, you gotta go under the hood. You gotta get under the mask. You gotta see what's going on. And then you have to kill the root. If you just clip the fruit, it's gonna grow back. And this is what explains why some of us are having a hard time getting past some addictive behavior, some destructive behavior, because we just are dealing with the fruit. We're not getting to the root. We're simply modifying our behavior. We're not getting our character transformed. And so Paul is saying, listen, you have to deal with that. One of the Puritans said it this way. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin is your enemy. And so Paul says, I want you to renounce it. How do you know if you've renounced it? How do you know if you're repenting of your sin? By the way, I, I use the word repenting intentionally because I don't know that we ever really repent of a sin as much as normally in my life, I'm always repenting. So sometimes I'm like, man, I dealt with that back in the Clinton administration. I repented of that in the 90s. And oh, there it is again, right? So, so we're always repenting. But how do you know if you are really renouncing your sin? Listen to some wisdom from Tim, Tim Keller. He says, this is how you know. He says, you know you're repenting or renouncing your sin when your heart, I love this, relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs other than God. Now, I'm sure you've heard some good quotes. That's one of them. When your heart relaxes and says, I don't need that. I might want that. I might be tempted with that, but I don't need anything. I have what it takes. I will not be deceived. I will, see, sin presents itself as beautiful and alluring, and when you unmask it, you see it for what it is. And you say, it's a distraction from what God's called me to do. It will destroy my relationship with God. It will hinder my relationship with people, and so you're able to renounce it. But I think it's interesting that he talks about all this sin stuff, all this kind of negative stuff, on the heels of saying, you're loved apart from your performance, your, your life is hidden in Christ. He's saying something to us. He's saying something to us. See, um, I grew up in a family where I felt like I could never please my dad no matter what I did. Mom, however, always pleased. Now, I don't mean she was always pleased with my negative behavior, but this was mom, man. I mean, she's the one that helped me with my homework. We, she's the one that played catch with me. She's the one that worked through all my girl problems, right? And she would always say things like, honey, it's gonna get better. It's gonna be fine. You know what she was saying in her own way? You have what it takes. You have what it takes. No matter what stupid thing I did as a teenager, and I did a lot of stupid things as a teenager. Anybody wanna confess that sin right now for yourself? They were like, what did you do when you were a teenager? I was like, I played sports and I broke commandments. That was it, that it sums it up. That's what I did. But here's, here's mom, no matter what I did, I knew she would never reject me because I was her son. And she loved me because she loved me and she was patient with my you know, immaturity and she was utterly committed to me 
no matter what. And you know what eventually happened? Because I loved my mom so much, actually because I knew my mom loved me so much, I wanted to let go of everything that got in the way of our relationship, right? Lying, right? Um, all kinds of, like I, I, I wanted to please my mom and this is the key to long-term change. This is how you walk out of some of that sin you've been dealing with for years. You realize, man, I am totally safe. I can tell God everything because he already sees it and if I'm a follower of Jesus, he's already covered it. And what that does is it changes your life. See, sometimes our problems are because of our sin against God. Sometimes, though, we deal with when people have sinned against us. Verse 12 says then, going from vertical to horizontal, put on then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So he, he, there's a fashion metaphor going on in chapter three. He's like, take some things off, put some things on. That's a bad shirt, take it off. It doesn't look good. Uh, take, those, take those jeans off, your thighs look fat. Whatever, I don't, whatever however you wanna go with the, the fashion thing. Take off the ugly and put on the new. So he's saying, I want you to put some things on. Now, what he's really saying though is because, the, I, I don't know if, if this is true for you, but it's true for me. The pain in life is mostly felt through the presence of people. And so what he says is, I want you to release your pain. I wanna re release your pain. Um, the, the pain of life is usually felt through the presence of people. I mean, wouldn't life be awesome if it wasn't for people? <laughs> Look to your left and right and say, you're one of those people, aren't you? Just tell them, Just tell them right now, you're one of those. It's like college would've been awesome without the classes, right? Life would be great without, but they're there, right? And, 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 and they hurt us. See, we're hurt in relationships. And what, what Paul's talking to us now before he gets into marriage and, and parenting and how you deal with your work relationships, he's like, listen, you're hurt in relationships, but you're also healed in relationships. So he really is teaching us how to forgive because he's getting ready to talk about the main the relational patterns in our lives. So he says, bear with one another. The word bear means to endure. So another way to say it is, you have forgiveness muscles, and you have to work them. And here's how you work them. You put up with little offenses, and you forgive. See, God is strengthening you. It would be like you trying, because this is coming, and I don't want to break the bad news to you, but there will be significant betrayals, significant wounding in your life. If it hasn't happened, it will. It will happen. And so right now, these, and I'm not, I'm not saying they're little in the sense of not hurtful, but some of the things that we are struggling with forgiving right now, this is God preparing us for something later. And so if you, if you don't, if you skip leg day and you go to the gym with 500 pounds on the squat rack, you're in trouble. 
So you gotta work those muscles, you gotta work those muscles, you gotta work the, you gotta forgive, you gotta forgive, because there is a day coming when you're gonna need it, and, you, and maybe by God's grace you avoid that pain, but you know what, you're gonna have a friend who needs you to help them through their significant forgiveness thing, and you're only gonna be able to do it if you built those muscles. This is what it means to bear with one another. This is what it means to be patient with one another. And then, Oh, wait, it gets worse. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, I wish you would have left that last part off. How about you? Because then I can import my own definition of forgiveness. But he defines forgiveness based on what God has done for us in Christ. So, did Jesus forgive most of our sins? Half of our sins? How many, church? All of our sins, all of our sins. So then we're supposed to forgive all of, when we have a complaint, I love it. when you have a grievance, when you have a complaint, when you, when you have a case, you ever build cases against people? You ever have these anger fantasy conversations in your head about what you're gonna say and what you're gonna do? I'll take that laughter as a yes. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? You're building a case. I got to complain. I'm going to build a case. I'm going to build a case. Because, and we think it's because we're going to tell somebody about what this person did or we're going to tell that person. Actually, we're trying to build a case with God. We're trying to say, God, because of all this, I don't need to forgive. And the Lord says, no, 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 I got this verse, Colossians 3.13, I need you to look at. The word forgive there means to cancel the debt. It's kind of an accounting word. So they owe me a conversation after our last conversation. They owe me respect. They owe me love. They owe me an explanation. You know what? In most cases, that's probably true, they do. And God says, cancel that debt and release them. Doesn't mean you trust them in the way maybe you trust them, but you release them. You release them. Here's why it's hard to do that. There's a quote by Miroslav Volf, who was, he was a theologian, but he watched his, many of his family members and many of his countrymen killed in a war of ethnic cleansing in the Balkans in the 1990s. And this quote is powerful. Here's what he says. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Now, now first part. I exclude myself from the, 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 um, the enemy from the community of humans. In other words, when we are unforgiving towards someone, we must make them less than human. And here's how we do it. We label them. She's such a narcissist. Are you a psychologist? You sure about that? See, see what we do? And, and I'm not saying there aren't narcissistic people, but we label people to dehumanize them to justify our lack of forgiveness. And the second part is worse. I exclude myself from the community of sinners. What we're saying is, I am God-like. I would never sin that way. Are you sure? See, I think any, I really believe this. Anything that anybody's ever done to me, I'm capable of worse. I just kind of know my heart that way. It's not pretty, but I think it's true. So 
Wolf says, listen, to forgive means they're a human being, they're made in God's image. To forgive means you're also a human being and you're a sinner. And this is the way forward. Some of you are hanging on to tons of unnecessary pain that you are holding. And Anne Lamont said bitterness is like this. It's like um, drinking rat poison when you're the rat. So what would it look like to release? Some of us are like for, for years, like we just, we're hanging on to this thing. Something just happened freshly this week and, 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 and it's tempting to hang on. Just what would it be like just to, okay, Lord, I don't, I release this. We don't have time, but you get down into verse 15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and minds. What it's, one translator said, the best way to understand that word is, let the peace of Christ rule is to, is, is to say, let Christ be at home in your hearts. Is Jesus comfortable in my life? Is, that, is he at home? Can he kick his feet up and go, hey, tough time in that person's life, but they've forgiven. Hey, they're tempted to condemn themselves, to always berate themselves, to always look down, but they're, 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 they're seeking, they're setting. They're so tempted to justify, to rename, to ignore their sin, but they're actually dealing with it. I want Jesus to be at home in my heart. I want the peace of Christ to rule. This is how you know you're on the, there's peace. When there's strife, when there's, something's off, something's off. And so, what would it look like to believe you have what it takes? You don't need anything else. Jesus is enough and he's at work through his spirit to make you more like himself. Because when you're like Jesus and I'm like Jesus, that's where joy is. Not just for us, but the people around us. So we're in God's hands, friends. He brought us here today to hear this word. Colossians chapter three. It's powerful and it's for us. Let's pray together. So Father, I pray for myself and my friends that we would be people who actively remember who we are, whose we are, our identity. That we would be people who renounce our sins, that repent regularly, who don't excuse, who don't ignore, who don't avoid dealing with that which displeases you. And Lord, that we would be people who are quick to forgive, who are, who are ready to bear with, who are hard to be offended. So help us with that, Lord, we pray.